You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode down in Mika, Oklahoma today with Travis Marek of Marek Family Farm, a small farm continuously operated by the Marek family since 1912. Uh, that's a ways back. Uh, they offer grass-fed dairy bottled at the farm and seasonal produce as well, and they supply a lot of local vendors. If you're a fan of cafe cacao, they're a huge... Um, you know, they, they provide cafe cacao with all of their milk, and, and if you've been to cacao, you know their coffee's really good and and the milk obviously is a huge part of that so this podcast is made possible by local homer uh looking for fresh local food oklahoma farmers and ranchers are excited to offer meat produce dairy eggs and honey from their farms and ranches local homer is a way for you as the consumer to connect with producers in your area find local homer that is oklahoma with an l at the front of it on facebook and find your local food now so with you know with, with this huge crazy year that we're in you know coronavirus and all this stuff and i know you're probably buying food online and and shipping food and all the rest of it well if you want to support local if you want to support your local businesses this is the place to find all the vendors that you can go and support you know all these vendors they they probably were hit a lot harder than most of us uh, especially a lot harder than most of the big chain stores so if you want to go buy fresh meat produce dairy eggs honey Go to local home on Facebook and find out exactly what produce you can get in your area because I think you'll be very surprised at what is close to you. Uh, and look, it might be a tiny bit more expensive, but when you see the faces and, and, and where it's going and the families it's supporting, you won't think twice. So check it out, local Homer, and let's get into today's episode. Uh, but we are in, um, you know, we're out in, in micro Oklahoma today to talk about your family business, which I know there's a really interesting story behind it. And I know that, you know, you've come back to the family business from traveling and, and we just had a brief conversation about traveling around the world, which is something I think everyone should at least experience once. Go somewhere you've never been before. It's totally worth it. Um, but we're in micro Oklahoma and you have a dairy farm business which has been around over 100 years that's correct which is very rare in oklahoma yeah so uh first of all thank you for coming out and taking the time to come to our farm um so what we have here is it's a family farm my my great-grandfather uh bought our farm in in 1912 and then uh shortly after that my my grandpa who was in world war ii uh when he got back from the war he bought uh 160 acres that adjoined my great-grandfather's original 80 acres. So, um, you know, they, my great-grandfather, you know, with his 80 acres, they mostly did corn and animals and they, it was a very much a subsistence farm. So they, they would grow whatever they could grow or raise for themselves. They would sell a few things on the side. They did cotton. Uh, they had a big orchard with blackberries and blueberries and peach trees and all that stuff. So, um, you know, my great grandfather, they had, uh, they had five kids and only one of them stayed on the farm. So the other ones, they all went off and, uh, one became an artist and he lived all over the place. And, uh, he, he just recently died a few months ago. Um, but he, he was a really great painter and wound up having a studio and teaching place in Kansas city. And, 
the other one became a, uh, he had epilepsy, but he was able to be like uh, a newspaper reporter and editor. So he wound up at the end of his life running the, the Meeker newspaper and he lived all over Oklahoma running newspapers. Uh, he did some logging in Washington state. Uh, my other great aunt, she was a, a nurse in the military. So, uh, and the other one wound up being a biology professor and golf coach. So that's what he did. And yeah. I guess my grandpa was the only one who wanted to stick it out here. So that's how my dad and uncles yeah. and all that got started. And also that's, uh, that's so cool. And to, I mean, I love looking at family heritage, right. And to see where everyone's gone and then to see where people, if they've come back or they've not come back or what they've done. And, and just looking at the family tree is, it's definitely something special. I think Americans, like they're not going to have a lot of that, of what you explained. Right. And I know you said, your family's originally from Czechoslovakia, which explains the last name. And like you said, everyone gets it wrong, and I totally did as well. Um, but yeah, for to have, to thanks, super thankful to have you know one of the five to stay around and, and keep keep the family business going. No, it was that the whole dynamic of uh, you know when my family first came here, it wasn't just a super easy trip. So I actually was able to to trace it uh, when I was in the Czech Republic. I went back to the little village where our family came from and I was able to see like the actual house that they left. So it was my, at that time, great, 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 however many great grandpa yeah. and grandma, they came over, they had six kids, they didn't speak the language. They landed on Ellis Island. Obviously everyone knows what Ellis Island was like. So, you know, they, they had their own battles. So at that point, uh, Eastern Europe was bad enough that, you know, we don't know the language, we have no connections, yet we have to go to America, we have to do something. Mm -hmm. So they came here, they started with nothing. Uh, they worked their way from Ellis Island. Uh, they must have stayed in New York from some time. So I was able to trace it from the family's uh, trip from the Czech Republic, what was what's now the Czech Republic to Ellis Island. And then there's about 40 years of nothing. And we know for a fact that from Ellis Island, they somehow wound up in a little town called Everest, Kansas. I always think of an Everest in Kansas, like Mount Everest. There's nothing there. It's a cornfield. Uh, but there was this whole little group of Czechs that kind of lived there, and they started this little community. And eventually, they, when the Oklahoma land run opened, they came down here. And my great great grandpa, who uh, started, who came to Oklahoma, he he had a broken leg. They couldn't make the land run, so they wound up. Uh, just buying a property in Shawnee, uh, which is the town that is yeah. uh, 10 miles south of here. And from there, my grandpa bought the place where, or great grandpa bought the place where we are now. So there's, in, in doing research with genealogy, our whole family, we're nerds for genealogy. The family trees are awesome. Uh, you know, the idea that we left this place where we had probably lived for hundreds and hundreds of years to come to this other place. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's always some amount of things tugging you back to where you came from. And that, yeah. that was one of the main things. Yeah. That's so cool. So fast forwarding, uh, what, what is your like first memory of growing up around here then being on the farm? My first memory of growing up on the farm was probably, there's a couple, I would say, uh, as a kid, Growing up here in Oklahoma, I remember summers the most. And summers were always really, really hot. Everything was overgrown and everything was heavy. So all the jobs we had to do were just like, go lift this pile of rocks or go move that pile of metal. Like everything was heavy. It was mm -hmm. always summer. 
uh, and there was always a jungle of poison ivy or thorns or stickers somewhere that we had to find things in. Uh, that's a memory, uh, hauling hay with my dad. So we would have to buy a lot of hay in the summertime to stock up for winter. So we would go on hay hauling trips from, we'd be gone all day. And I just, I didn't know anything else. Just let's just go haul hay. So we're just driving and we've got 20 round bells of hay on the trailer and it took us two hours to get to Blackwell. Now we got to come back and, you know, we'd spend all summer just seemed like driving around in trucks. Yeah. Uh, I remember running away from home and the, my best idea was to run away to my grandma's house that was about uh, a quarter of a mile down the road <laughs> where everybody knew I was anyway. So, you know, we'd go play on the bridge and throw rocks and then I was like, I'm just going to run away. So I just went to my grandma's house and of course everybody knew where I yeah. was. So um, those are probably when you think back to like, this is what I remember, you know, that kind of stuff. I have a huge family, lots of cousins. We would all come to the farm on, on Sunday and we just get into trouble and just goof off. And, you know, really it was pretty, uh, idyllic. Um, it was a, a great childhood, a great way to grow up. Yeah, definitely. That's growing up outdoors is just so many life lessons. And I think that's one thing that like, nah, you know, like everyone who lives, you know, everyone's becoming more urban and living in bigger cities and even like the farming towns are turning into cities now and you know kids just aren't growing up the same as they did you know 10 15 20 years ago as soon as that and you know like the way i grew up and I'm, i'll be 30 soon so i'm not old by the, by all means but you know i i my i have a five-year-old my brother's five years younger than me and he grew up totally different to what i did you know i'm out on my bike riding around mom's like just be home by dark and he's like no i'm gonna play call of duty all day <laughs> i'm staying in uh, but yeah, I, I think growing up on a farm, I think that's something that being a golfer, I would probably hear golf balls everywhere. Yeah, I did the same. So my dad played a little bit of golf here and there, not very much. He had an old set of clubs and I would just, I remember going into the garage and I would just pretend that the, uh, we had a little small basketball court outside of our house and I just, I wanted to play hockey. So I would pretend that the hockey, that the golf club was a hockey stick, which it's not. And I would ruin the clubs, but I'd spend just hours hitting golf balls out in the pasture. And, uh, I never really got the chance to play a lot of golf, which I like to play now, but, uh, yeah, golf's fun. All the sports are fun. Um, my dad played college basketball. So we were, uh, he played at a small college, uh, called Carl Albert Junior College. It's mm -hmm. in Poto, and I think it may be actually closed now. Um, he played there. I have a, an uncle who played professional basketball, um, so we've got a pretty athletic family. And yeah, some amount was transferred to me, but not that much. So you played quite. I mean, all of the sports growing up in high I school. Played, and I then... played basketball and baseball. I never played football. Uh, I, you know, we tried to play as many as we could. Uh, we did little league from the time I was five years old up until high school, you know, it was always baseball in the summertime and, and then more as I got older, I liked playing basketball a lot more. Yeah. Lots of sports. And then you go off to college. You don't, I go off to college and, uh, I didn't really have, I think my parents forced me to go. I was able to get some financial aid, um, 
<laughs> you really didn't want to go? I, I had no, I didn't, I didn't have a clue about what adulthood meant or trying to figure <laughs> out some kind of a life. Like what do you do after high school? Yeah. I liked goofing off and telling jokes. So I also liked CSI. So my best thoughts in my 18 year old brain were, I'm going to be a forensic scientist or I'm going to be a comedian. One of the two, obviously, uh, those didn't pan out. So I actually landed on journalism. Um, I started off in radio journalism and then I found out that I like taking photos, so I wound up majoring in photojournalism and doing a lot of just like photo stories, uh, shooting sporting events, yeah. like gover government handshakes, all that kind of stuff, and, and writing as well. So. so you're a lot better at this than I am then. I, I wouldn't say that. Because <laughs> I, I do know. not have a degree in journalism. <laughs> uh, so I don't use the journalism degree much anymore. I did at one point doing freelance stuff, but once I started the the milk bottling project and mm -hmm. that kind of just went away in yeah. ashes and where'd you go to university uh central oklahoma oh, okay in edmond yeah uco yeah nice uh so doing photojournalism took you to all parts and all different places and see a lot of different scenarios then yeah uh i that was what also growing up uh my my grandma and grandpa would have stacks of national geographics and i loved national geographics and i absorbed it and i would just look at the maps and I wanted to go to all the places and uh, it was interesting, you know, growing up in Meeker, it's a pretty small town, but my, my dad and mom actually were able to do quite a bit of traveling with the dairy cows. So mm -hmm. uh, my dad, he would do these kind of farmer exchange programs where, you know, every other summer he would go overseas to New Zealand or Scotland or Ireland. He went to Australia several times. They would just go tour different farms uh, and then we would always host farmers from other places. So. I might wake up in the morning and I'm 12 years old and there's a, an Irish guy sleeping on the couch and they're about to have some tea or something. And yeah. like it was, it was pretty common to have folks from all over the world visit our farm. Uh, and my mom and dad would do the same through the, the breed of cows, like the cattle association that we have. Um, that's where, uh, you know, traveling was kind of, it made sense like it was a it was normal in the family yeah, right yeah it was pretty normal every we would go to to cow shows all over the country and um that's just we just you know we live on the farm but doesn't mean that you're stuck here for you know yeah. not in jail or anything um, yeah so and actually it probably one of the most important things that has ever happened to me is my dad was invited to judge the the Royal Milking Shorthorn Show cattle show in uh, South Africa. No way. So uh, he saved for how, who knows how many years, and they paid his way, but we had to pay our own way. So we wound up, the day after I graduated from high school, we got on a plane and flew 16 hours to Johannesburg, South Africa. I had never been. We went to Mexico once, like just across the border uh, from yeah. El Paso, but like landing in in South Africa is a whole different world so uh, what year was that that would have been 2002 okay um, and man we did it was it was the most insane trip that I've really probably ever been on uh, the places that they took us to we didn't have any business being in any of those spots and we saw the whole country like we went on uh, we stayed with farm families that was the main thing but they we took cars all across the country and South yeah. Africa is, it's a big, it's a big country, but it's not huge like the U S and I mean, we saw, I saw things, safaris, uh, we met people we shouldn't have probably have been meeting. And yeah. I don't know, it was, it opened my eyes. It was, it blew my mind. Like 
this is what the world's like. So from that point on, just, I was like, man, I should probably work for National Geographic. Of course, there's not a huge amount of those kind of jobs in the world. So right. uh, I, I just wanted to travel and, and that's, you know, after college, I kind of fulfilled a lot of those ideas. Yeah, that's one thing that being from like back home, a lot of people back home take the gap year and go do something, go back, I go travel because it is easier going somewhere in Europe if you already live there. Um, that's one thing I don't think people in the States do very often, do they? They're so like business and minded and just like, I need to get a job now that I graduated. They don't take that one year off and, and travel. And even if it's around the country. No, I think a gap year is great. I think if I was to tell 18 year old Travis, you know, go to college get a degree, get a job. I was like, man, get a backpack. And if you can, if there's any way you can survive, you know, do that instead, because I don't know, just the experiences you have, the things that you see coming from Micro, Oklahoma, and you know, you're in a world where you're a minority, like that's, that's amazing. And it's way more valuable than, especially now, like having a college degree, like, you know, take, take a year off, just do yeah. something else. Don't, you don't have to go to school. Uh, cause probably you're not going to wind up what you went to school for anyway. Yeah. Okay. So, so after college, you, are you like, I'm on a plane, I want to go straight travel and mom and dad are like saying, yeah, go for it. Or do you think I need to get a job? Yeah. So, uh, right after college, I didn't quite have a good plan. So, um, I, of course, wanted to, to travel and see some other things. So I got a job teaching English in South America, which I didn't have any. I couldn't speak Spanish and um, I didn't have any teaching experience. either. So <laughs> the, that was quite an experience. And so I got there. And when you so I, I arrived in Peru on New Year's Eve and they have a huge uh, celebration. And basically, you know, I was kind of in on the coast in the North, uh, would have been West of the Andes and it's pretty dry and deserty and it's dark. And we land on this little runway. And the first thing I see when I get off the plane is all these, what look like bodies, like burning from hanging from windows and people pulling them behind the cars and what they are are scarecrows and they're stuffed with straw. Like, what have I done to myself? Why yeah, am I so here? They, uh, from the best that I can understand, they, they burn the, the scarecrow things to burn away all their cool. sins and past lives so that they can start the new year fresh. And that was like what was going on here. Um, so I, I did the teaching thing and I didn't save any money, but it was, it was awesome. It was a life great experience. People. Uh, they put me in like a very basic English class. So I was teaching folks, kids at the time I was 24, uh, you know, how to speak English and they couldn't understand anything I was saying. So I told the, the department heads that you guys are going to have to give me something else. So they gave me like advanced level students. So I had smaller classes and the kids were my age. They were conversational. They all wanted to be English teachers. It worked out great. I still talk to them from time to time now. So, Mm -hmm. uh, that was a pretty wild adventure doing that. And then, so you thinking like, so after that's not a long process, right? You're there for a little bit. What, uh, yeah, that yeah. didn't last for long. So I came home and I was I was ready to get back. I'd lost probably 20 pounds because I had diarrhea for about four months straight. <laughs> um, just kind of looking around for things to do. And my uncle had told me that there was, uh, you know, you could get work in Alaska doing like 
tourist jobs, like yeah, yeah, yeah. carrying bags or working in kitchens or on the cruise ships. So I thought that sounds awesome. And so I did some research and I wound up getting a job in Alaska. Uh, that was like my first, at this point, farming was not an yeah, option. So yeah. I would, you know, in the summers during college, I would come home, work on the farm, uh, go back to school. Um, then right after I graduated, I worked here for a little while also, but I, I wanted to travel and see things. So I got a, I got the job in, in Alaska. Uh, I was a photographer for a rafting company. And then I wound up working at like this wilderness lodge on an Island. It was beautiful. The most amazing place I've ever seen. So I did that for about six months and saved up some money. And, you know, when you work in, uh, like the hospitality industry, there's always people going different directions. Like, oh, we're going to go here. We're going to spend yeah. the summer there. And that sounded awesome. Uh, so I was like, a lot of folks were going, you know, to other countries. And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. So uh, I took what money I had in working, working there. And I was able to save up enough money that, you know, I started to plan this trip. And I was like, man, my goal, I had these maps in my room. And I was like, just drawing pictures, like, yeah. you know, circling these places. I'm like, man, I bet I could, I bet I could travel around the world and like just one big thing, just like see everything. Mm -hmm. And initially the goal was, uh, to fly to New Zealand and then travel back to, you know, Europe, like Belgium or sure. uh, somewhere and only travel by land and sea. So not flying. And I knew it was possible, but it takes a long time and you kind of got to be in the right place. So, yeah. uh, once I got to Australia, of course I had to work because it costs so much to, to even get there, but, but there's plenty of jobs in Australia. plenty of jobs. I wound up getting a job on a ranch, which I had no intention of doing. So we worked on a big cattle station up in, uh, the Northern territory, which is about twice the size of Texas and about 300,000 people. So there's nothing there. It was, it was the wild west, uh, that was <laughs> people take 10 hour car rides to go to the grocery store yeah, in Australia so in the middle of nowhere. The station that I lived on, it was about 8,000 acres and they had, I want to say 10,000 head of, of Brahma cattle. And we were an hour away from the nearest neighbors and an hour on a dirt road yeah. to the nearest town. And the nearest town is, they call them, uh, road houses. Yeah. And you, and you're, you're herding cattle by helicopter by right? helicopter. Yeah. So that was, it was like a little Volkswagen with a propeller. It was yeah. amazing that I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, they call it mustering. So you muster up the cattle. Uh, we would work a thousand head a day. So castrating, um, branding and vaccinations and yeah. just the, the effort, you know, they have in that part of Australia, it's, uh, they have a, a really heavy rainy season. So they get up to nine feet of rain per year mm -hmm. and they're off grid, not by choice, like not because they want to be off grid, but because that's where they have to live. So yeah. they had this huge diesel generator that created their power. They harvested rainwater to drink. Uh, they had banana trees growing in the front yard and they had a pet kangaroo who lived in the house. <laughs> I've never seen anything <laughs> like it. Um, come to Australia. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it was amazing. It was dusty. I was there in the dry season. I never saw a cloud. Um, they have this red dust that's a lot like what we have here and there's just cows everywhere trees um, yeah. so yeah when when you see the helicopters you know cows are herd animals so they just kind of flock together and it's like uh seeing the birds in the sky when they're like flying in yeah. shapes um 
It's pretty impressive. It's if really people impressive. listening that have never seen it, like YouTube, it. It, it is. It's it is amazing. Quite a thing. Yeah. yeah, and I don't. We don't do it here, probably for a good reason. But uh, yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. Yeah. So how long were you? Go, so you get you get done in Alaska. You plan the trip and you go to Australia. Yeah. So I was in Australia for six months, and uh, when you're living out there, um, there's no place to spend money, so you just put it in your pocket. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Of course, sometimes you want to spend a little, but. Uh, you can't do it. So sadly you can't Amazon a package in. And, uh, so I was, I was on that ranch for about three months and then it was really interesting. They had, a this big farmer upheaval thing. So, uh, a bunch of the farmers got together and they were protesting the government because in that part of Australia, they still have something called live export, which means, uh, a big cattle market for northern australia is indonesia Mm -hmm. so they'll ship cattle live to indonesia which is pretty strange to most of the world but it's pretty it's close but it's not so close yeah um so that's what they do and a lot of folks were against that so there was a lot of legislation trying to get live export banned in australia well the australian farmers which i give them a huge amount of credit i wish it would happen here more often but they were like we're not doing it Mm -hmm. so they just Basically, all the farmers, and I say all of them, obviously it wasn't all of them. The majority of them, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. It was this huge thing all across Australia. They they banded together and, like, they called it, I can't remember what they called it exactly, but the idea was to go to uh, Parliament House in Canberra, which is the capital, Mm -hmm. which is essentially our White House, and they're just camping out. So, you know, they that's what they did. And it must have been a huge effort to organize this, but this was during my my last few weeks on the first ranch, I was like, this is awesome. This is, this is like a moment in Australian history that, you know, this is way cool. So I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to document this. So I'm going to photograph all this stuff. I had my gear. I was like, this is going to be great. So I somehow managed to, uh, I made friends with one of the truckers and he let me hitchhike with him, uh, from Darwin, which is at the very North of Australia Mm -hmm. to, to Canberra, which is, it's a, it's a week's journey by it's car. Crossing the country, fast, isn't it? yeah, it's, it's across crazy. the country yeah. and it's a huge country. Did you drive through that giant, like middle of nowhere? What yeah. is it called? So, uh, um, oh, well, that? the desert, the Alice yeah. desert. Maybe, yeah. It's just like, like a complete, like deserted. So, as we would go through these different towns, we would, we would meet up with other farmers. And so, and when I say farmers, they have, uh, most of the farmers, ranchers have their own trucks. Yeah. So, and they're not, they call them a road train, but it's like a diesel. Eight giant 18 wheelers, not your average. trailers, not yeah. one. So yeah. they're just driving their trucks. And I mean, it's, so every time we would stop in, we would camp overnight. Uh, they would have kind of a rally. Um, and, you know, they would pick more trucks up. Hundreds of trailers rolling all, out with you. They're all coming together. This is huge news over there. They're all coming together in Canberra to, to do this big protest. And I couldn't believe it when they got there uh, yeah. that it was it was as amazing as you could think right. that it was. So it was just a bunch of ranchers and farmers just driving their semi trucks around the the capital, the the White House essentially, just honking their horns. Everybody's protesting. They're camped out. They have a big lawn, um, kind of like uh, so yeah. like the Washington Monument, a huge lawn, and yeah. it was all farmers, and it was amazing. Uh, so in, in doing that, I actually met another rancher who had another station. Uh, in the east part of Australia. So I went to work for him uh, for a couple of months there doing the same kind of work. And, you know, obviously 
it doesn't make a lot of sense to Americans, but in Australia, there's a huge labor shortage. So a lot mm-hmm. of the jobs are filled by backpackers from, yeah. from England, from Scotland, from Sweden. They all speak English. They're all on gap year. So yeah. I was meeting people from all over the world. They had no experience. They were just there to, to work in Australia. It's very easy to get a job in Australia. It's easy yeah. to get a job. Most of the farm labor is done by, you know, 18 and 19 year old Swedish kids, not what mm-hmm. we have here. So it was a completely different experience. Um, I've met, you know, a lot of folks who were going a lot of different directions. And so I just kind of kept yeah, going. North such a good there. life experience. That yeah. is. Like, do you, obviously you have all the photos and all the memories from it and stuff? I, and I, I have most of them. I was actually, I got mugged on a train in Mongolia and I had all of my camera gear stolen. Oh no. And, uh, I lost a lot of stuff. I lost all my, my photo gear. Yeah. Uh, and the SD cards and everything else. And the cards. I had some of it backed up and saved. They didn't get that. So that was probably one of the low points. Yeah. uh, So you made, you tried to make it all the way back from, from Australia, right? Yeah. So uh, I started in New Zealand and I worked on a, on a salmon farm in New Zealand uh, for several months. We would just harvest salmon in in one of the rivers there. Yeah. Um, So I saved some money, went to Australia, worked there for several months and then had enough cash saved and in that amount of time that I could afford to travel basically from Singapore to, Mm -hmm. I I think I flew out of, from Brussels. Yeah. So I had a friend in Belgium and I traveled overland from Singapore without flying to Brussels across through Southeast Asia, Central Asia, you know, into Russia and across to Europe. What's Russia like? Russia's, I think Russia's awesome. I was there in the winter, so it was 40 below zero. You kind of like the, the, when you spit, it's ice before it hits it's the that ground. that cold, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I thought it was awesome. The parts of Russia I saw, I spent just a handful of days in Moscow, but the rest of it was really rural. Uh, I took trains the whole way, so, you know, you're... <laughs> it, it, Russians have, especially the men, this certain physique and attitude and everybody drinks vodka and it's really strong and they sell beer in three liter plastic jugs and it's terrible, but everybody drinks it and you kind of feel obligated to to have a drink with them because you don't, you don't turn down a drink in Russia because that's, that's the way to, that's the way to connect with them. And that's them saying, Hey, they're testing you out, like have a drink. And it's, it's such a weird thing to explain to people who've never traveled, but by sitting down and having a beer or like having a vodka with them and they will go toe to toe with anyone in the world and they will test you of how much you can drink. <laughs> and like they, which to some people listening who have kids and are very conservative, that's like, that's the last thing I want my kid to do when they travel, especially in a foreign country. But you pass that test, you are their best friend. No doubt. And they can't speak, most of them can't speak English. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter because they'll have, they'll have, an hour long conversation at you. They're not talking with you. They're yeah. talking at you and you're just nodding your head. And, um, yeah, it doesn't matter. They, they're yeah. so excited. Americans have a pretty bad reputation for the most part in a lot of countries, but that's only because Americans don't travel. And I think that if more Americans would travel, then, uh, you know, yeah, most people are so excited to meet an American, whether it's for a good reason or a bad reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, even that was probably 10 years ago. So the world's way different now than it was then, but they're, they're so curious. All they've seen is Britney Spears and, and movies. So they yeah. don't know much about America, like, Oh, an American. Yeah. Um, so I, I was always received really well. Um, 
mm-hmm. you know, it's never a good idea. I never wanted to turn down a meal. So yeah. people would invite you to have meals, but sometimes you're like, you know, it's probably not a great idea for me to go with that person to have yeah. a meal. Um, but usually there's, you know, just walking down a street somewhere, you know, you can see the families in and, and it happens. They, they just invite you in. Yeah. Plus traveling alone is, it's a much better experience than traveling with a group because people are more likely to invite you to do things. If you're just one person versus, well, there's five, five of us. It's kind of hard to get involved in things with that. Yeah. And they definitely treat you differently. There's five Americans walking into a, to a restaurant or something that there's just one guy walking in, uh, which is kind of, I mean, makes sense, I guess. But so you go through this whole experience, you like travel, you have all these world experiences. You see this thing in Australia, you know, you're on a salmon farm in New Zealand and you get mugged in Mongolia, which is terrible. Uh, but thankfully, you're still here, and it wasn't as bad as the Taken movie. Uh, and you make it back to the States. Yeah, so uh, it, that's kind of when it all was changing. And growing up, I never had the idea that I wanted to, to run the farm or be right. here. Uh, I hated it, to be honest with you. Um, there, I didn't see, as you can see around us, there's not a lot of wealth that goes into dairy farming. So, you know, money wasn't necessarily the main reason, but it was like, it's not any fun. You're here all the time. Uh, it's always a hundred degrees. It's, or it's always cold. One of the two, there's no in between and you can't take a day off. Nope. And there's just always something happening. And that it didn't sound appealing to me at the time. So as I was traveling and specifically when I was in Australia, my first day on the, the job at the cattle station, we, uh, we went to the pasture. And so I was living with the family and there was probably six of us, two kids and four adults. So we go out to the pasture and there's this old cow. Um, so we're going to go shoot this cow and butcher yeah. her, which is what we did. So we went out and, uh, you know, the cow wasn't wild. She was just standing there and the, the farmer, Gary, he, he shot her and dropped her. Uh, and then we skinned the cow, quartered it up, threw it on some banana leaves in the back of the truck. And then we hung it, uh, overnight. And then the next day we went and we, we did our cuts and did a bunch of ground beef. And we ate that one cow, all of us every day, twice a day for three months, that one cow fed the whole wow. family. And so, yeah. and we ate that one animal at least twice a day. So we would eat it. We would have like corned beef for lunch and then some kind of a stew or, uh, like a stir fry thing. We Mm -hmm. didn't really eat steaks. We had oxtail and all that stuff. But, you know, I was like, man, that changed, that changed everything for me. Just seeing that, that one thing. And plus, you know, before that I was working on the salmon farm and I was kind of starting to think, you know, salmon is a, it's kind of a luxury item. Um, they would make sashimi and sushi out of it. Mm-hmm. And the salmon was awesome. It was really expensive and they exported quite a bit of it. So I was like, man, you know, there's, there's 10 of us working on this farm. We're, we're harvesting these salmon in the river. We're feeding them every day. You know, it goes to the processing plant. We're putting in a lot of effort to produce mm-hmm. this one food thing that only a small fraction of the people can afford to buy. And yeah. I was like, well, what if we put all this effort into producing something that a lot of people could eat? And, you know, I kind of started to have those thoughts working yeah. on these farms in other countries. And so in traveling, you know, once I left Australia, going through Southeast Asia, it's all rural. You know, you have your big cities, but for the most part, it's agricultural. And yeah. you're traveling through rice fields and water buffalo and floating markets. And there's fish everywhere. And 
it's like there are no grocery stores, there are no refrigerators. So my whole idea of what it meant to actually, you know, what it takes to grow food, what it takes to get an animal from a baby calf mm -hmm. to a plate, I was like, if people only knew how hard this was, then their whole idea of, well, maybe the farm isn't so bad. Maybe right. it's not so terrible. And they like, definitely wouldn't buy from Walmart ever again. They'd, they'd probably, be buying from local absolutely, stores. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I was taking notes like, you know, this is how agriculture is done in other places. And yeah. specifically in China, when you ride the trains, you know, you'll have a train going one direction on separate tracks and another one. So there's three or four feet in between tracks. Mm -hmm. They're growing rice in between the tracks. No and, way. And here we we waste so much land. Oh, there's so there's much land. So here. much land yeah. that is completely arable. You can do so many things with it. In China, yeah. they can't, they're stepping over people to grow things. And China, as you're seeing, is one natural disaster away from complete famine yeah. because it's still mostly rural. And, mm -hmm. you know, the bridges are bad. The road systems are bad. One flood can knock out a food supply to a town if, yeah. if it came to that. So as I'm traveling to these places, I'm just like, man, that one experience in Australia, having grown up on a farm and not really appreciating it, yeah. it uh, you know, it just started clicking. And once I came back, I was like, I still wasn't certain that I was going to be a dairy farmer, uh, but I was like, man, I've got to be. But you had the land there ready to go somewhere. rather than yeah. buy your own farm. What was the business like before you came back? What so were they doing predominantly? My dad, my dad and uncle and my grandpa, they started uh, basically a commercial dairy farm. So mm -hmm. my dad and uncle studied dairy farming at OSU and um, they, they did hand milking and selling cream and that kind of stuff before that. But, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you could run a farm and feed a family with 80 acres and 30 cows. You can, you know, feed them pasture. Yeah. Uh, the milk price was way better. So they essentially had a commodity farm. The milk was bought and sold on the commodities market uh, price per hundred, which is the same as a bushel of corn or, or wheat. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what they did. They, they started, uh, they built a small dairy barn. It's right out there. You can still see it. Um, and they ran that, uh, my uncle decided to, to go to work for the department of bag actually. So he did that in the mid eighties. My dad kept the dairy farm going. So, you know, he, he's going to be 69 this year. So he's been doing it for close to 50 years. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was, uh, they had a commercial dairy. Uh, we have milking shorthorn cattle and mm -hmm. they're a very docile breed. They originated in England. Uh, he's been doing genetics work with them for years and years and years. They used to be pretty low on the totem pole, but now they're pretty well respected. Uh, they have great milk. Um, so that's the kind of farm yeah. that he did. They were pasture based. So, you know, in farming, especially dairy farming, you have you know, you can spend a huge amount of money on inputs and you can just feed your animals and just, you know, we have expensive this, expensive that. Um, but he found over the years that if you just give them grass, give them some hay, they'll take care of themselves. They're not necessarily going to produce record-breaking right. amounts of milk, but they're not stressed out. The farmers aren't as stressed out. Sure. Everything you do on the farm creates more work and that's not necessarily a beneficial payoff. So yeah, you can grow a hundred acres of corn and grow your own grain, but now you're growing a hundred acres of corn and you're out in the field all the time yeah. and then it can fail and you still have to buy something. So right. it took, I think it took them a while to land on that. I know they tried everything milking three times a day, growing their own everything, but, uh, for, for what our cows are and for what they do and the product that we get mm -hmm. at the end, like it, 
the way that we do it is, is pretty good. Yeah. So you came back with all these ideas and we're like, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, hey dad, I'm back from my travels. I I've got all were, these ideas. They were surprised. They weren't just overly excited, pretty skeptical. Yeah. Um, but you know, as I kind of looked around Oklahoma and what we had here, dairy was pretty low on the totem pole. Um, in the seventies and eighties, Oklahoma had, you know, they were way up in dairy production. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dairy farms, mm-hmm. but now there's about 150 and they're going down pretty fast. So, yeah. uh, the dairy farms are going away, but it's not because, you know, people don't want milk. People still drink milk, whether it's, you know, butter, ice cream, yeah. chocolate milk, whatever. Uh, the farms are disappearing because the commodity price is terrible and the work is also terrible yeah. and the farmers are getting so old that they either don't want to go into into more debt to to finance the farm or they just yeah. are tired and that makes a lot of sense and someone comes in that's a landowner and developer and exactly. says hey i'm going to give you yeah. three or four million dollars for your of land farms are now interstates or shopping centers yeah no doubt yeah and and there's not a lot of people coming out of college that you know not many people come out of OSU and say, you know, I'm going to go and work on my dairy farm. No, absolutely. Even if they, even if they grew up on a dairy farm, I think most people who get a dairy science degree are probably going to be, uh, nutritionists on bigger farms or vet of some sort, Mm -hmm. which is, there's more jobs doing that. But my goal was to, you know, there wasn't many people doing, producing and bottling their own milk. So I was like, there's a market for that. And, uh, that's that was my goal is, is to do that yeah so you come back um you know like i said pitch all these ideas to to dad and an uncle and like you know i actually want to get involved and i'm sure they were surprised very uh you mentioned the bottling side of things yeah. tell me so, about that so most dairy farms they produce their own milk and it's really high quality no farmer wants to produce something that's bad uh but they sell it all in the commodities market, so it doesn't go straight to the consumer. They have to sell it through a middleman or to a co-op. Uh, what I wanted to do was take our milk that was already really good that I thought and bottle it and market it ourselves under our own name. So, And that's, that's a chore in and of itself. Uh, there's not many people that do that. So that was the main goal, and it took... It took a year to figure out how to do it with equipment and regulations and uh, health department and Department of Ag stuff. Uh, I applied for a grant through the Department of Agriculture that helped buy some equipment. Um, and of course, you have to work with uh, uh, the dairy inspectors the whole time, so they have to approve all your plans. They mm-hmm. have to, you know, you have to work with uh, natural resources to make sure that you're cow manure isn't going into someone's water well or into a lake or a creek or a river or something. Uh, so we had everybody out here who was, they were telling us all these things and you, you can't just build something and expect to sell it to humans at a supermarket, Yeah, you know, with no one knowing. So you have yeah. to tell the right people. It's really hard to succeed. That's what you're trying really to say. Hard to succeed. And it takes a lot of money. It yeah. took a year just to get the financing or it took a year to get the thing planned out we yeah. took a year to build it uh i had to mortgage the farm to pay for it so my great-grandfather paid for his farm with the land yeah. uh, with land payments my grandpa did the same my dad did the same so our farm has been paid for three times over Damn. you know why would you build why would you build a new dairy farm on a land on a farm that's, that's already paid for why would anybody do yeah. that but that's what i did right. and i don't know if that was 
I didn't have any investors or anything, so yeah. it was just. But you prefer that it that way. The only way to right? do it. You don't uh, want to. I mean, unless you do want investors. I have no. I don't know what an investor does or doesn't yeah. do. I've never had any experience, so it was a foreign idea. That yeah. it seems like the more people you involve in your endeavor, the more people pull you in different directions. So yeah. I only knew of one way to do it, which is the same way everyone else in my family had done it for a hundred years. Um, you borrow money on land and yeah. that was the way we did it. So, so we're, we're here now. <laughs> yeah. So take me to present day. Like so right now on. what we do is, uh, so we bottle, we, we milk the cows, uh, we bottle the milk, we do low temperature pasteurization, um, which is most milk, most store-bought milk is pasteurized at, a, at an ultra-high temperature, so you'll see UHT milk in the grocery stores. Um, that means it's pasteurized at about 200 to 220 degrees, which essentially sterilizes the milk, and it's homogenized, which breaks all the fat up. So when you get lactose issues or people who can't digest milk, a lot of times it comes from the homogenization process, which essentially changes the natural state of the milk, and it can make it hard for the body to digest. Most people don't have issues, but it's a, it's pretty common to have yeah. uh, some folks with that. So on our side, we don't homogenize, which we've had customers tell us they can't drink any milk except for our milk. And the only reason we can think is because we don't do the homogenization. Yeah. Um, and so we, we pasteurize, we do batch pasteurization at a low temperature. It's 145 degrees for 30 minutes. And what that does is it, is it kills bacteria. So raw milk has bacteria of all kinds, good and bad. So, um, what pasteurizing does, Louis Pasteur invented it in France, you know, 150 mm -hmm. years ago. This is, we use the same process, the same temperatures, the same times. Yeah. It hasn't changed. So um, the, the low temperature, what it does is it, it kills uh, Salmonella, E. coli, Staph, coliforms. It can actually make people sick, but it maintains the probiotics that are in the milk. So mm -hmm. it's still a living thing. With, with grocery store milk, you can't make cheese, you can't make butter, uh, you can't make all these other things. But with yeah. our milk, you can do that. So it's still a living organism. Um, you can make, you can culture it, you can make butter and cheese and, and all that stuff with, with our pasteurized milk. Yeah, It's illegal to sell raw milk in stores for various reasons. Here in Oklahoma, every state has its own, uh, its own set of laws. So uh, believe it or not, Oklahoma is one of the more lenient ones. If you know a dairy farmer, legally he can sell you as much raw milk from his farm as mm -hmm. as he wants to but he can't leave his farm so you have to go to the farm to purchase it got you in california you can buy raw milk in the grocery store they have issues with it all the time yeah um so in some states you can't it's completely illegal they will put you in jail for even possessing raw milk if yeah. you're not a dairy farmer so oklahoma is actually one of the better states yeah and i would suggest to people raw milk is a huge topic we get questions about it all the time it is safe but i would suggest that people go visit the farm where the milk comes from. You don't want to be buying milk in the Walmart parking lot from a guy that doesn't milk the cows. If it's yeah. just some dude, like you don't know, and you don't want to feed that to your kids. Yeah. Chances are not a good it's not going to kill you, but come to the farm to see if you don't like what you see when you get to the farm, you're probably not going to trust the product. So yeah. that's what I tell people when they ask about raw milk. So a lot of your customers, I assume, are like commercial based who are like, like I said, making cheese or. All that's, that. that's not true. Actually, no? we don't, we don't sell, we sell mostly to, uh, small coffee shops who do uh, like specialty okay. coffees, roast their own coffee, uh, restaurants, um, in Oklahoma city that want to use quality local yeah. foods. So, uh, we actually don't sell to any cheese makers that I know of, uh, 
we sell to one or two small ice cream shops. Um, but we have small grocery stores. Uh, so there's a, a grocery store here in Meeker called Anthony's Foods. It's an independent grocery store. We had a grocery store for years and years. They closed down. I think we were probably 15 years without one in our small town. So yeah. that means you have to drive 15 miles to get to a Walmart, basically. Uh, so Anthony, he opened this Anthony's Foods, his own store. It's doing great. The town of Meeker, which is less than a thousand people, it's we're not very wealthy, and they're our biggest customer by far. So yeah. when we first started with Anthony's, he was kind of weary. Uh, you know, we had just started cranking out milk. We did these little glass bottles at the time. I just gave him product. It was twice the price of normal milk, the cheap milk that you can get. Yeah. I was like, man, I'm going to give it to you. He put it on the shelf. It's started selling really fast and it hasn't slowed down. So That's awesome. it's, it's pretty amazing uh, that I never in a million years thought that our community would support, for one, a more expensive product. Yeah. Uh, but they do. And that's kind of a misconception is that people who, who don't have a lot of money don't want to spend money on food. Mm -hmm. They do want to spend money, but they, they want it to still taste good. So just because you have, you know, a small town doesn't mean you can't sell local food yeah. for a little bit more in your small town. It can still happen even with beef and pork or eggs. We right. did eggs for a while. People bought all the eggs we could put on the shelf. They bought all the veggies we could put on the shelf. So it wasn't a matter of all it costs too much. It was, you know, they know the folks who are producing this yeah. and they, they still bought it. And yeah. you can buy our, our milk on food stamps, which is awesome. Uh, that's a big percentage of our sales. So, uh, you know, selling our milk where we've been in this town for a hundred years, it's, it's been probably one of the biggest that's surprises. Really cool. It's been a lifesaver. I mean, it's hard to sell product, you know? Yeah. So you find your spots and, uh, it's super helpful to have the town, you know, buy yeah. so much of our product. I think that's a great way to transition into just being a part of the made in Oklahoma and having people buy product that's, that is made here, even if it's, you know, from your hometown or from somewhere in the state, like there's so many products that people are making and in previous podcasts we've done, it's been candy or it's been, you know, bath bubbles and soap and, um, alpaca stuff. And like, there's, there's so many products and, you know, search the websites go and find these people because like you said your story it means so much to you that people you know will pay extra right for this quality so product not only you know it's it's good for the farmers but it's also you know no farm operates on its own there's mm -hmm. a whole number of people who work on the farms as well so when you buy a local food product you know you're supporting a farmer but you're also supporting the families who work on the farms and you know especially with dairy farmers or with dairy farming you know, we're losing so many farms. You're also losing jobs when you yeah. do that. So every time you, you know, if you can get a farm that, you know, has a good product and you're able to help them grow, then, uh, you're supporting the families who work on the farms also, which, uh, plays a big role in local economies. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, the process. Like I know you do it twice a day, once in the morning. Yeah. Evening, so but milking, for those listening, the cows is, no it's, idea. It's twice me. a day, every day. Uh, you want to ideally milk them 12 hours apart. Mm -hmm. So, uh, generally with commercial dairy cows, uh, they, they do produce quite a bit of milk. So, you know, a gallon of milk weighs 8.6 pounds per gallon. Multiply that, you know, our average cow gives five gallons of milk per day. So, uh, you know, you're wow. looking at 50, 50 pounds in the udder and that gets pretty stressful for the cows. So you want to milk them twice a day. So they yeah. don't, you know, if you don't milk the cows, they, 
they get, uh, they can get infections, you know, they can get sick. It's, we, we give some tours to, to homeschool families quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. uh, I never knew how much, uh, nursing mothers had in common with cows until I start rattling off. Well, you gotta, there's something called milk let down. You've got mastitis, you've got somatic cell counts or the cream and this and that. And the, the moms are like, Oh yeah, we know all about <laughs> exactly that. what you're like, talking about. <laughs> you know, the cows are, we, we milk them with a vacuum system, which is essentially, yeah. you know, a, a form of a, of a breast pump for cows. And sure. it's, you, I learn as much as I think they learn. <laughs> it's come a long way from the old school of sitting on a stool with a Absolutely. bucket and doing yeah. it by hand. So the cows are milked every day, twice a day, uh, seven days a week. Uh, a cow is, has about 300 days where she'll produce milk and she has to be you know, she won't start her milk production life until she's two mm-hmm. years to two and a half years old. So from the time she's a baby calf, she is a money loser for two and a half years. And so <laughs> yeah. that first year of eating all of her, your money, yep, she's eating it up yeah. and there's not just one, there's 50 more just like her, just eating money. Yeah. Uh, so the first year of milking is just making your money back on raising that one animal. Ideally, you know, she'll produce our oldest cow is 12 years old. That's it's not uncommon on our farm, but on most commercial mm-hmm. dairy farms, you're lucky to get three, four, five years. Uh, so, and a lot of that is just the lifestyle. You know, our cows don't stand on concrete all day. They're, they're out in the pasture. So yeah, uh, that's where you get like the longevity. And it's a lot better to, to keep a cow for a long time than to try to raise all these other ones. Sure. They just cause you problems until they're ready to produce milk. Yeah. So for everyone listening that, that you know, maybe would want to come on a tour if they're homeschooling their kids or they want to buy product or, you know, like where can they follow you? What, what can, they, so how can they find you? The best, the best thing to do is to contact us, uh, on Facebook or via our website. You can send us an email, uh, Merrick family farm.com M A R A K. Uh, we're on Instagram. Also, uh, you cannot find us. Do not show up unannounced. You have to contact me first. Um, who knows what's going to be going on when you just show up. So we don't, we don't necessarily give tours. Uh, you know, we're not a tour company, but we do let folks, if they schedule ahead of time, Mm -hmm. uh, it's no problem to, to show you around. There's not a huge amount of excitement that goes on. Uh, you know, unless you want to get here at six o'clock in the morning or six o'clock at night, then, then you can see some stuff. But uh, otherwise it's just looking at yeah. cows and baby calves and that kind of thing, which a lot of kids are just super happy to see that anyways. Where can they buy your product around town? So most of our, a lot of our business is done in Oklahoma city. Uh, we work with several restaurants up there. Um, cafe cacao, they use our milk. They use a ton of it in, in drinks and sauces. Uh, it's a great place. So you can go there and, and order something with our milk in it. Uh, Cuppies and Joe one twenty third. Um, elemental coffee uh, in Midtown, they use our product. So a lot of small coffee places, um, Urban Agrarian is a store that, that is a locally sourced uh, Oklahoma food store. They have shops in Edmond and one in Oklahoma City, which is their headquarters. So they, they sock our milk, uh, plus a lot of other dairy farm products from other farms. So that's a good spot to find it. Um, Meeker, Preg, Crow's Market and Shawnee, um, the Choctaw Farmers Market, um, pretty much everywhere. Yeah, and you can find it. Yeah, Paseo yeah, the Paseo Farmers Market. Uh, they have a really cool thing where it's it's a drive through this year, and that's all as a result of COVID nineteen. Yeah. So that's new. It's super awesome. Uh, 
uh, the Paseo folks, they, they really supported local farms. And when they were doing their market as like a standalone market, it was pretty limited, but the way they are doing it this year, it's, they've got a huge amount of products. So their website's really easy. You can go mm -hmm. on and you have access to food from all across the state, not just what was, you know, being grown around Oklahoma city. So, uh, they, they've really opened that up quite a bit. And I know they've helped a lot of other farms who have dealt with COVID-19 related yeah. issues, uh, as they have with us also. Great. Cafe Cacao's amazing. I love their coffee. It's yeah, so it's good. It's awesome. It's, it's really good. It's so good. Uh, Luigi is, yeah, he's, yeah, we got him on the podcast. It was that's good. He's, great he's a good dude. Yeah. yeah. I like Luigi a lot. Great. So, yeah. Yes. Awesome. Well, mate, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate, you know, you sharing the story and, and for everyone listening. And I'll post everything that, that Travis just mentioned down in the description. So you can go straight to it and see the photos and see everything that's on, you know, all the social media pages and the website and, and go buy some milk for sure. And go to Anthony's and buy some milk. Go to Anthony's and Meeker. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you next episode. Cheers. This podcast is made possible by Local Homer. Uh, looking for fresh local food? Oklahoma farmers and ranchers are excited to offer meat, produce, dairy, eggs, and honey from their farms and ranches. Local Homer is a way for you as the consumer to connect with producers in your area. Find Local Homer, that is Oklahoma with an L at the front of it, on Facebook and find your local food now. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.